give a synopsis of what is coming in the radio shows with the list of radio shows and items that you're going to cover. And I'm just so glad Pat Novak for Hire is on the list. I'm so excited about that because that really is one of my favorite shows. I just love that show. The similes and the metaphors are enough to just entertain me for the rest of the week if I listen to just one. It's great. That's right. And one of the ladies I purposely skipped over because we can devote five, ten minutes to her alone is Tallulah. So we can we can pick her up, uh, Tallulah Bankhead. Good. Just plain Tallulah. Her. Right. <laughs> she went by just plain Tallulah. Well, I am just so delighted that you were able to spend so much time with us tonight. And I apologize. We've kept you for three hours. And I, I just, I never intended to, to do that to you. But you're just so full of good information and fun stuff. I hope you have listeners that stay along that long. I beg your pardon? I hope you have listeners that stay with you for that many hours. We have listeners who call us at 6 o'clock in the morning. Oh, boy. (laughs) We have a family like nobody else has a family. Well, I will be in touch with you within the next week or so, and we can talk about your coming back to to go through the second half, because we've only done the first half of this book. And for the audience, Patricia and I are going to take a little break, and we're going to feature some highlights of Studio 9. This is where CBS show Chronological, with their newscaster, hit some of the highlights of the famous news stories on radio for about 25 years. So while Patricia and I take a little break, you guys will enjoy this. Don't hang up, Mr. Schultz. So here we go, everybody. Voices of Studio 9. Edward R. Morrow on a London rooftop during the Blitz. This is London. I'm standing again tonight looking out over London. In the course of the last 15 or 20 minutes, there's been considerable action up here. Charles Collingwood describing the German surrender. General Yoder said in a voice that choked and almost broke, with this signature, the German people and the German armed forces are, for better or worse, Delivered into the victor's hands in this war, which is... H.B. Kaltenborn speculating about a third term for FDR. Good evening, everybody. There has been a contest of wits between the President of the United States and the Washington reporters. They have sought to make him tell what he intends to do about a third term. He has sought... Eric Severide recalling the fall of France. The life just simply ran out of the city. Without a beautiful woman lying in a coma, you know, with her lifeblood just draining out from every, every vein and every street. I noticed the one way... Those are the voices of CBS Radio News, Studio 9. Those and others like Andrew Davis, William O. Shiro, John Bailey, Madden Jackson, who through the dark days of Hitler's march through Europe and World War II, through the 50s and now the 60s, brought the living history of the world through Studio 9 and into the living rooms of the nation. Tonight, they bid farewell to Studio 9. Farewell to Studio 9. An affectionate goodbye to the birthplace of CBS News. Here is CBS News correspondent Robert Trout. I am speaking to you from Studio 9. 
As broadcasting facilities go, this one is not remarkable at all. It's just a soundproof room, 15 by 20, surrounded on two sides by glass-encased control rooms. On the third, it looks out into the clutter of the CBS newsroom. It's not the handsomest radio studio, not the most modern, not lovely at all. But for those who have worked here, it has a charm all its own. We shall miss it. We have been moving this past weekend from this headquarters of CBS News at 52nd Street and Madison Avenue in New York City to our new headquarters on the west side of Manhattan. And this old Studio 9 goes dead. The voices of those decades that have gone seem to be talking again, speaking words that once made people tremble and rejoice and laugh and cry, sometimes speaking words that will not die. This program, an affectionate farewell to Studio 9, is a collection of reminiscences, recollections, and reports by the men who built CBS News, men like Edward R. Murrow. Bob, one of the infuriating things I remember about Studio 9 was that occasionally we would get through to master control, and then we couldn't get it down to Studio 9. And that produced some rather profane comments because we couldn't see how we could get a good signal three, five thousand miles and then the record couldn't get it for a floor. <laughs> I think the engineers are going to be slapping about <laughs> But we have some recordings of, uh, of some of the broadcasts, a few of those things that you did, Ed. Would you like to hear the other one? Would you like to hear the, uh, the, the one on the rooftop, the Blitz, in the Blitz? I never heard it. Haven't you heard it? Probably terrible. Uh, listen to it now. This is London. I'm standing again tonight on the rooftop looking out over London, feeling rather large and lonesome. In the course of the last 15 or 20 minutes, there's been considerable action up here, but at the moment, there's an ominous silence hanging over London. But at the same time, the silence, there's a great deal of dignity. Just straight away in front of me, the coast lights are working. I can see one of two bursts of any aircraft fired, far in the distance. Just on the roof across the road, I can see a man standing wearing a tin hat with a tall, powerful nightlight up to his eyes, scanning the sky. Again, looking in the opposite direction, there's a building with two windows gone. Out of one window, there's something that looks like a white bed sheet. A window curtain, only free in this night breeze. It looks as though it were being shaken by a ghost. There are two ghosts around these buildings in London, and some of them companies of ghosts. Yeah, well, I don't know how you feel about that. I, I found it kind of hard to take. I'll tell you something about that, Robert, that was never reported. I had to stand on the rooftop for six nights in succession and make a record each night and submitted to the Ministry of Information in order to persuade the centers that I could add lib without violating security. And I did it for six nights, and the records were lost somewhere in the Ministry of Information, so then I had to do it for another six nights before they would finally give me permission after listening to the second take of six to stand on the rooftop. So I had a lot of time up there. You remember uh, the studio of the BBC? That's uh, B4, it was. It was referred to as having finally been a waitress's robing room. <laughs> Which in fact meant that it was for the ladies' lavatory. <laughs> <laughs> and all the broadcasts in London came from during the world. This is a, a reminiscence that you'd ever care to remember, but it's always been my story. You remember the first time that you ever went on CBS on the air? We'd gone to the Christmas party of the publicity department, 
and somehow it stretched on into the evening, at least for us. And I was frankly a teetotal, you know, I didn't know anything about it. I was alcohol, and of course you were always very circumspect. And as the evening went on, I remember that I had to do a five-minute new broadcast supplied by the Press Radio Bureau. You decided that I really wasn't quite fit to do it. Do you remember that? If this is being recorded, I don't remember anything about it. <laughs> and I sat in the studio, and I was supposed to be doing it, and you did <laughs> And you were going to give me the cut. You were going to give me the watch at the end. And you gave it to me a minute early, and we left 45 seconds of dead air at the end. <laughs> I don't remember that That's at all. That's true. You <laughs> were the director of television. You weren't supposed to do any of that. That's right. I think that was your first broadcast. I see that. And one thing that's almost hard to believe in, as we uh, think about it, in those other days, we didn't have any press associations because the Associated Press, the United Press, and the International News Service, as they were then, refused to sell their services to broadcasters. Remember? Well, yes, and I can remember you night after night ending a five-minute news broadcast by saying, for further details, read your daily newspaper. I can remember when I first went to Europe in 1937, I was not permitted to be a member of the American Correspondents Association in London and Paris because I was involved in that ridiculous thing called radio. All I remember was that shortly after I got to London, you were president of it. Well, that was in the build-up for D-Day, yes. <laughs> Just happened to be my turn. <laughs> Well, uh, I haven't remembered that you had a hard time getting in. Well, of course, during the war, you made a number of bombing flights over the enemy territory, over Germany, broadcasting as you went. Astonishing broadcasts. I know that the uh, management of CBS was kind of unhappy that you insisted on going on these things and tried to dissuade you, and you wouldn't be dissuaded. We have the result of at least one of those air raids. Would you like to hear that one? Yes. I began to see what was happening to Berlin. The small incendies were going down like a fistful of white rice thrown on a piece of black velvet. The cookies, the 4,000-pound high explosives, were bursting below like great sunflowers gone mad. And then as we started down again, still held in the light, I remembered that the dog still had one of those cookies and a whole basket of incendiaries in his belly, and the light still held it. And I was very frightened. I looked down and the white fires had turned red. They were beginning to merge and spread, just like butter does on a hot plate. The bomb doors were open. And then there was a gentle, confident upward thrust under my feet, and Bob said, Cookie gone. A few seconds later, the incendiaries went. And D Dog seemed lighter and easier to handle. I began to breathe and to reflect again that all men would be brave if only they could leave their stomachs at home. When there was a tremendous rump, an unintelligible shout from the tail gunner, and D-Dog shivered and lost altitude. I looked to the port side, and there was a Lancaster that seemed close enough to touch. He had whipped straight under us. Missed us by 25, 50 feet. No one knew how much. Berlin was a kind of orchestrated hell, a terrible symphony of light and flame. There were four reporters on this operation. Two of them didn't come back. Two friends of mine, Norman Stockton of Australian Associated Newspapers and Lowell Bennett, an American representing International News Service. There is something of a tradition amongst reporters that those who are prevented by circumstances from filing their stories will be covered by their colleagues. This has been my effort to do so. I have no doubt that Bennett and Stockton would have given you a better report of last night's activities. That was the broadcast that became known as 
orchestrated hell. Yeah, I remember that. I'm sure you do. One thing that I imagine the public, thinking back, listening to broadcasts, listening to us talk, would find amazing, to hardly believe it, is that all during the war, of course, we didn't use recordings. It was all live. We were familiar to use them shortly before D-Day, and we used them from then onward. For example, they broadcasted George Hicks dead from the ship during the D-Day landings. What was done on tape was for him. Thank you for thinking of the people. 
I remember Elmer Davis. He was one of the most sensitive men I've ever met. Although most people didn't realize it. I wish you could read a little today. Let's listen to one of his broadcasts. Elmer Davis. Whatever the terms imposed on France may be, it can pretty safely be assumed that they will be such as to make it impossible for France ever to become dangerous to Germany again, unless, of course, if they should be overthrown. How much farther they may go in the direction of attempting to make France over on the Nazi model remains to be seen, but at least some of the Nazi theorists seem to have extensive hopes. One of the chief of these philosophers of Nazism, a man who has worked out its doctrines very thoroughly, is Arthur Rosenberg. He is a less prominent figure than he used to be, but he still writes a good deal in the Polkish Bell Boxer, the principal Nazi paper, and some remarks of his quoted in the New York Times last Sunday are a suggestion of the sort of world that the more philosophical Nazis will create if they can. Mr. Rosenberg writes about Paris. The fall of Paris, he says, I quote, the fall of Paris is the beginning of the end of the spiritual and racial turpitude of Europe. For Paris was the center of the mental confusion that pervaded Europe, end quote. What Rosenberg and the other Nazis call mental confusion, and they mean this quite sincerely, it's part of a well-thought-out philosophy, what they call mental confusion is what the rest of us call freedom of thought, the liberty of the mind to work over everything and come to its own conclusions. This man had an ability to compress and condense without distorting what I've never heard by anyone in radio anywhere. He had always the essence of the news, great brevity and great clarity. His, his was a genius. I agree. It's still the best instrument to see which to convey the news, this old-fashioned radio. That's what I wondered if you were going to say. That's <laughs> true. That's true. Let me just say to you then, goodbye and good luck. Another voice that was already famous in the early days of the war belongs to H.B. Kaltenborn, who even then, as a young fellow just entering his 60s, was known to the nation as the dean of radio news analysts. Now, having just celebrated his 86th birthday this month, H.B. Kaltenborn looks back to the Sudeten crisis of 38 and how it affected the lives of Americans who were keeping track of it. They'd never used the portable radios before, and they came in during that crisis. People carried radios all over with them. Wherever you went, you saw people carrying radios because they were listening to the crisis and didn't want to lose a minute of it. Yeah. They were bigger suitcases than those days. Yes, they were pretty big, but they carried them and uh, got a lot out of them. But do you think that uh, that crisis really is the, uh, the first thing, the turning point that made uh, this country more aware of the outside world and the whole world crisis? I think that's probably its significance. But for the first time, the entire country was aware of the fact that the actions of one of these dictators operating over there in Europe could plunge this country into a world war. And that was its significance. How many days and nights you spent, I guess neither one of us could possibly remember how many days and nights it lasted. But you used to sleep on the sofa, and, uh, and Mrs. Calvin Brown would bring in the soup for you, did you recall? That's right, I recall that very well. And uh, it was essential that I be there because things were coming up every minute. Yes. There was no time, day or night, when we couldn't be called upon to uh, analyze a major crisis. And so I did sleep in the studio, that was the only way we could handle it. And, uh, we uh, certainly uh, did our job. That is, uh, of course, we never had the commendations that came to us after that crisis. Gosh, that was yeah. something that overwhelmed me. I got petitions and 
tributes and cups and Lord knows what all. You could have gone to the Senate. No, I could have been something <laughs> of the reputation that I gathered there. Yes, but then when the war did come in 1939, and we were again in studio in the country still was, was pretty solidly isolationist. I don't suppose that the United States ever would have entered the war voluntarily. Yeah, the best proof that it was isolationist was the fact that we uh, had a hard time getting on a prayer by the Archbishop of Canterbury for peace as against the Kentucky Derby. And so we set it for the, uh, for the prayer. And by jinks, if the two didn't come at exactly the same time. And I'll never forget the uh, feeling in the uh, words of the announcer of the Kentucky Derby, but in Louisville, as he said, gee, we just had the greatest letdown of our lives because we took the time that we had taken for the Kentucky Derby, and the audience didn't get any of it. Well, those were the things that happened in those days of the old studio. After the war in Europe was, what, one year old in 1940, we had a presidential election in this country. And that brings me to another record that we have from those days. Let's listen to this one. Calvin Boyle edits the news. Good evening, everybody. For months past, there has been a contest of wits between the President of the United States and the Washington reporters. They have sought to make him tell what he intends to do about a third term. He has sought by banter, persiflage, clever answer, smiles, and occasional silence not to tell him. How long can that battle of wits go on without somebody losing his temper? However, Franklin D. Roosevelt is clever enough with repartee and easy enough in almost any situation in relation to the porters to be able to continue to handle it. That's another one we know the end of now, is it? But did you think at that time that, uh, that Mr. Roosevelt would run again? Yes, I felt that he would run again. I'm sure that he believed that he could handle this difficult piece of war situation better than anyone else. And there was nothing against a third term. The Dean of American News Broadcasters, H.V. Carltonborn. A voice that today regularly commands the nation's attention is that of Eric Severad, one of broadcasting's most celebrated news analysts. When the war began, Eric Severad was a newspaper man in France, and he joined the growing CBS News staff as the Germans drove nearer to Paris. Now it is June 9th, 1940. This is Paris at midnight. It's been a great day for the moving and packing industry in Paris. At the time of the Battle of the Marne in 1914, the Germans were equally close to the city. I don't know how many more radio broadcasts can be made from the Paris studio. If there is an interruption, we will try to continue with facilities installed in other towns further south. I do not think there is any deliberate attempt to hide the real state of affairs in the people's camp. They are as calm as could be expected. They are fatalistic people. It is this quality which makes Frenchmen stand half naked in this working heat beating their red-hot guns until literally crushed out by German tanks. Perhaps it's this which permits young French men and girls, as I saw them today, to fall on their backs in the broad balloon swimming pool and idly watch the flaring bursts of anti-aircraft shells in the sky. 
Robert, that's the first time I've heard any of those broadcasts from that period so long ago when Paris was about to fall. I wouldn't recognize my own voice. That broadcast must have been one of the first half dozen or so that I ever did. And you can, you know, I must say, it frightened me to death. I had to know how to speak, and the microphone scared me. And I never quite got over it. <laughs> I really made the last broadcast to the States from Paris. In fact, they packed up that radio station as soon as I finished that night. It was very bad. And uh, in the city, when the Germans were coming in, it must have been very shortly after that broadcast uh, that the government pulled out. And they didn't tell the people what to do or where to go, whether to stay or to go. So they crowded around the railroad stations in the southern part of Paris, Gamma-Pamas, for example, by the thousands. I was lucky. I had a car and I had all the francs that CBS had in the bank stuffed in my pocket. And I even had a bicycle on top of that car, an extra can of gasoline. So I was able to make my way south with the government. But it was perfectly terrible. But the roads were clogged, weren't they? It was awful. We drove uh, all night and all day, just barely creeping along. It must have taken us oh, many, many, many hours to get on a tour with the government. But that last day I was in Paris, there was a crowd, cloud of black smoke. The north, uh, way to the north, creeping toward Paris. I think some oil dumps or something was set on fire. And it was also very symbolic. The whole horizon began to darken and close toward the city. And looking up to the Champs Elysees, Great Boulevard, there was hardly a car left. I noticed the one waiter out putting the chairs from the cafe back inside. No one sitting there. The life just simply ran out of the city. It was like a beautiful woman lying in a coma, you know, with her lifeblood just draining out from every, every vein, every street. But we had quite a run of luck. We had this uh, break about, uh, I'd send a cable, sort of a code thing in advance to New York, that uh, if I wired them such and such a phrase, it meant a German breakthrough or a French breakthrough or something of the sort. And coming down from Cambrai on that long night ride on the refugee train, we could see the gun flashes off the northeast, and then we would hear the sound of the guns. And in our group was an American who had been in after World War I, and he took out his stopwatch, and he timed uh, the period, you see, between the flashes and the sound, and, and then we figured out how far it was, and we measured it on a map, and it's perfectly clear from this little exercise that the Germans had broken through. Yes. And so I got to Paris, and I finally remembered after uh, maybe a, some hours of having forgotten that cable that I hadn't sent a cable and I sent this code phrase to Paul White in New York. And then he finally remembered he had such a cable in his desk and do it out. And I think on the Davis broadcast that they had what they believed to be a reputable report that uh, the Germans had broken through the main French defenses. At least that's what I was told later when I got to New York. And I remember in New York, the big front page headlines on the newspapers more than once with a story of yours that had come yeah. across through yeah. CBS. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah. I suppose to just as Paris was falling. You didn't go to the south at all to the Vichy government. You no, I, I left Bordeaux then when Pétain took over and they, they surrendered. And, uh, in fact, I was on a ship uh, coming out of the mouth of the river, a sister ship. Uh, I was bound and, and sunk. I heard on the ship radio um, Bill Shire broadcasting from Compiègne the former surrender to Hitler. That's an extraordinary sensation, I must say. I can't regret it.
CBS News correspondent Eric Serberide. We'll listen to William L. Scherer at Compiègne describing the French surrender and talk to him about that day in just a moment. Farewells of Studio 9 will continue after a 10-second pause for station identification. This is the CBS Radio Network. CBS News continues with Farewells to Studio 9. Here again is Robert Kennedy. As CBS News moves into its new headquarters and Studio 9 shuts down, the voices that broadcast living history form a permanent record of our time. One of those who broadcast, William L. Shirer, a newspaper man in Berlin, was hired by European News Director Ed Morrow to help fill the growing call for more broadcasts from Europe as the lights again began going out one by one. Soon, with the Second Global War a reality, the voice of Scharer, speaking almost nightly from Berlin, was what we came to feel was the principal thread of sanity that still kept us linked in a way with the capital of the country that was, although then undeclared, the enemy. William L. Scharer was in the forest at Compiègne in France, June 22, 1940, looking through a window of a train car, where inside Hitler was accepting the French surrender the same train car in which, 22 years earlier, the French accepted the German surrender. William L. Scharer, on that June day in 1940, described the scene. Hitler slipped something into the car, followed by Goering and the others. We watched them entering the drawing room and Marshal Post's car. We continued to move through the car windows. Hitler and his staff, and took the post occupied by Marshal Post, the morning, the French minister was signed. The German salute, the French salute, the atmosphere is what Europeans call correct. But you'll get the picture when I say that we've seen our handshake, not on occasions like this. with the story of wars that had come from us through CBS. Yes. Especially just as Paris was falling. You didn't go to the south at all to the Vichy government. You went no, there. I, I left Bordeaux then when Pétain took over and they, they surrendered. And, uh, in fact, I was on this ship uh, coming out of the mouth of the river, a sister ship, uh, and it was bound and, and sunk. I heard on the ship radio uh, Bill Shire broadcasting from Compiègne the formal surrender to Hitler. It's an extraordinary sensation, I'm saying. I can't forget it. <laughs> CBS News correspondent Eric Severide. We'll listen to William L. Scherer at Compiègne describing the French surrender and talk to him about that day in just a moment. Farewell to Studio 9 will continue after a 10-second pause for station identification. This is the CBS Radio Network. CBS News continues with Farewell to Studio 9. Here again is Robert Kennedy. As CBS News moves into its new headquarters and Studio 9 shuts down, the voices that broadcast living history form a permanent record of our time. 
runaway through broadcast, William L. Scharrer, a newspaper man in Berlin, was hired by European news director Ed Morrow to help fill the growing call for more broadcasts from Europe as the lights again began going out one by one. Soon, with the Second Global War a reality, the voice of Scharrer, speaking almost nightly from Berlin, was what we came to feel was the principal thread of sanity that still kept us linked in a way with the capital of the country that was, although then undeclared, the enemy. William L. Scharrer was in the forest at Compiègne in France, June 22, 1940, looking through a window of a train car, where inside Hitler was accepting the French surrender. The same train car in which, 22 years earlier, the French accepted the German surrender. William L. Scharrer, on that June day in 1940, described the scene. Hitler took something in the car, followed by Goering and the others. We watched them entering the drawing room and marched approach the car. We can see my through the car windows. Hitler and his staff, and quick the place occupied by Marshal Paris, the morning of first line of Hitler's time. The German salute, the French salute, the atmosphere is what Europeans call correct, but you get the picture when I say that we see no handshake, not on occasions like this. Hitler and the other German leaders rise from their feet as the French enter the drawing room. Hitler, we see, gives the Nazi salute long way. The German officers give a military salute, the French do the same. Hitler, so far as we can see through the windows just in front of us here, does not say anything. He nods to General Keitel at his side. We can see General Keitel adjusting his paper, and then he starts to leave. He is reading the preamble of the German Armistice Plan. The French sit there with marble-like faces and listen intently. Hitler and Goering glance at the green tabletop. You see Hitler stand up, salute stiffly with hand up raised. In side by the drawing room, followed by Goering, General Dalkitz, Grand Admiral Raider is there, here has stand at the end. That was the, uh, the first of the two-day sessions. When Hitler arrived at the little clearing in the forest near Compiègne and uh, laid down the conditions, we were the only people for embarrassingly long hours that had a report that the French had signed the armistice. And that would do to, as are so many scoops in journalism, to uh, a piece or two of very good luck. All the other uh, foreign correspondents, including Americans, the newspaper people, had uh, flown back to Berlin that day uh, because Hitler had said that the armistice news would come from him. I took a chance and stayed at Compiègne. Uh, the armistice was signed at 6.50 p.m., and I think I went on the air at 7. And I assumed it was being recorded in Berlin. But what happened, somebody in Berlin forgot to pull the switch, and it went straight out from uh, Berlin on the German shortwave center to New York. I was told later that even people like Churchill and Newman first got the news because Hitler did not release the news amethyst for six hours. And I remember, I think later on, I had a feedback with uh, New York, and I heard Emma Davis, who was then doing the thing that afternoon, saying, oh, it's an exciting news, but uh, there's no confirmation of the place. <laughs> the voice of William L. Shiler. John Bailey, who we then called John Charles Bailey, broadcast for CBS in the 30s from Washington. 
Then, with the creation of that great dividing line of our times, the start of hostilities, he made his permanent home here in New York, in this Studio 9. It was here that he made his now famous broadcast on December 7th, 1941. I was standing out there in the newsroom, uh, looking over the machines, uh, waiting for any last-minute things that came in, and uh, this uh, Pearl Harbor announcement hit, and I came in and broke into the Philharmonic concert to announce that, uh, that uh, Pearl Harbor had been attacked. this program to bring you a special news bulletin. The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, by air. President Roosevelt has just announced. The attack also was made on all naval and military activities on the principal island of Ohio. Uh, the staff was sitting around this, this table, and they just, we took turns going out and picking up every little bit of information we could about uh, the relationships with the Japanese, the principles involved, the character and nature of Pearl Harbor getting little shreds of information, telephone calls to our station affiliates and in the area. And uh, we just kept the air and kept on reporting everything that came through. It, it, uh, it doesn't, in the context of all that's done these days, perhaps sound very revolutionary, but for that time, it was. The, the concept that you would just take over a whole network's operation and uh, give the broadest and, and widest coverage of uh, the story that you were on, in those days, was a revolutionary concept. John Daly also broadcast the news on that April day in 1945. Wilderness Road, adventure on the American frontier with the Weston family and Daniel Boone in the exciting days following the American Revolution. We interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin from CBS World News. A press association has just announced that President Roosevelt is dead. The president died of a cerebral hemorrhage. All we know so far is that the president died at Warm Springs in Georgia. Uh, I think its impact on me probably was greater than it would be on most because I have been White House correspondent for three or four years uh, in that wonderfully informal atmosphere that existed in those days in, in that assignment, which doesn't 